0: But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Let's pray that prayer, we pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. How many people here... Being honest, are, are fans of opera. All right, we've got like two, two that'll admit to that, two that will own that. That's good. Grace, I know she likes opera, so I asked this a little bit, you know, poking at her. Uh, but what I think Grace really means by that is that she likes certain arias from opera that make it into the Spotify playlist, you know. And I, I can get on board with that because some of those pieces are really wonderful. Um, I don't know that either, Grace or I, can imagine actually sitting through an entire opera, uh, you know, like actually at the theater, you know, like like in my house, like we, we prefer musicals. We like those uh, because we like the songs to sort of punctuate the story rather than be the whole story and take over the whole thing, um, you know. And so, I don't know, we've always felt like as theater, opera is kind of terrible because it just feels unnatural. It's weird. And the reason is, Nobody sings that much. It's not natural. You don't sing that much unless there's something wrong with you. Not every moment calls for a song. If you break into song in the grocery store, people will look at you funny. And I don't mean singing along with the radio. I mean you're like singing about the vegetables as you're choosing them. And then like singing about how long the lines are. And then singing about the price of the eggs, right? Like... If you live life like you're in an opera, people will avoid you. Some people may be tempted to violence, because not every situation demands a song. Now, singing is relatively normal in some situations. Some people are singers. I like singing sometimes. So other people like to whistle or hum. you know, we all have our vices. Um, some people do that when they're working, right? My old boss was famous for his whistling. He had a loud, piercing whistle. Some people hum when they're nervous. I tend to hum when I'm irritated. But it seems to me that singing tends to be a happy thing. Tends to be. You know, some sing when they're sad. They just sing more sadly, right? But, but nobody sings the same way at all times, right? It's all about context. You don't usually sing at like a crime scene, for instance. That would be inappropriate, unless you're on something. I don't know, my brother's a cop in Philly, I should ask him sometime. You don't sing during the movie or during a play. We tend not to sing much if we're violently ill. Or if, let's say, you're in the belly of a whale or a sea monster of some variety. That, to me, seems like a weird time to sing. If you've ever been in a choir or had any vocal training at all, you know the choir directors are always big on training you to take huge, deep breaths so that you can belt out what you're singing, right? you got to control your breathing. But if you're in an enclosed space, and the air is limited, and every breath that you're taking could be your last, and you're almost certainly quite nauseous, and what little air you have reeks of death and decay, as we were discussing last week... I personally wouldn't want to waste my limited oxygen at this point on singing. But today we begin looking at Jonah's song. I realize that your pew Bibles label this as Jonah's prayer, which is accurate, it is certainly a prayer, but it's hard to escape the fact that it has the look and feel of a song. Even the way it's formatted looks like poetry, right? It's not narrative. It has verses, it has stanzas, it has themes, it just kind of looks like a song. And it comes in kind of a weird place. You know, he doesn't wait until God gets him back on the dry land and then starts singing praises, right? He sings the praises before his deliverance. And after three days of absolute terrifying misery. Now, like I said, I don't know about you, but I tend to sing usually if I'm happy, right? If I'm in a good mood and I'm feeling kind of playful, I can sing. Prayer can be similar to that. Uh, When I'm miserable or in despair or feeling particularly hopeless, for me, prayer can be hard in those times. Maybe you feel the same way. But Jonah not only talks here to God, he sings to God. And really, this is Jonah at his very best. This is his finest moment. He prays a most beautiful prayer, And he does it in the form of a song and in the most distressing of circumstances. Now, I'm not going to rehearse all the details from last week, but we know that Jonah's in a rough spot at this point uh, for all intents and purposes. As we've said, he's at the bottom of a watery grave. He's very uncomfortable right now. Uh, I mentioned before that, you know, I've been deep-sea fishing just one time. Uh, And there's something about being on a small boat that all these choppy waves, it it conforms to them, you know, so it's doing this thing the whole time, right? And I didn't know if I was prone to seasickness. I don't go out on the ocean much, you know? So I took Dramamine that morning. My brother insisted that I take Dramamine that morning because, as he told me, once you get seasick, it tends not to stop. Like, now, I've always hated throwing up. It's like a pet peeve of mine. I feel like there's an episode of Seinfeld about this, right? Um... I would sooner feel sick than get sick, if that makes sense. It doesn't make sense, I know, it's just me. Uh, but, but sometimes, when you're sick, you know that throwing up will actually make you feel better, right? It, it, gets, the, it gets it out of the way. You don't recover from seasickness in the same way. Uh, it just kind of gets worse and worse. And we saw this evidenced by one of the guys on the boat that day. So my brother didn't want to be dealing with me puking all day, so... Maybe I wasn't prone to seasickness, but it wasn't worth the experiment, let's just say. (laughs) And a landlubber like Jonah, I'm going to say, probably is more prone to seasickness. So after three days of this, he feels pretty awful. And that's along with everything else that we mentioned last week. He's being slowly digested in the stomach acids. It's pitch black, humid, wet very hot or cold, depending on the creature. He would simultaneously be nauseous and desperately thirsty and hungry, shocked to find himself alive at all, and it's been going on for three days. It's not the right place for a song. But what does Jonah do in this terrifying place? He prays. What else can you do? And he does it as a song. And what strikes you, when you pause and think about it, is the eloquence of this prayer really is the highlight of jonah's ministry right and irony of ironies it's when nobody's there to hear it that's when jonah's at his best it's like when you hear somebody singing in the other room and you come here like oh that was beautiful and they immediately clam up and they're never going to sing again like some people can't perform in front of an audience that's jonah not exactly impressive in front of the crowds but he's great when he's alone he's wonderful at this if nobody's listening And the beauty of this prayer is what throws you off, I think, a little bit. Because it's almost too good. What possesses Jonah, after three days, to pray such a beautiful prayer? Not a God-please-just-kill-me kind of prayer. This is a hopeful song. Hope is laced throughout it. You kind of get a clue in the first verse here. When it says, then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. And at a glance, that just seems like a simple preface to this prayer, and it's easy to almost kind of skip it. But I love it because it doesn't just say that Jonah prayed thusly, colon. He prays to the Lord, to Yahweh, but I love that little detail, the Lord his God And that jumps at you because the Lord is still Jonah's God. After everything that has happened, and after three days of slowly dying in this monster, Jonah is going to pray to his God. Not just generically the God of Israel, he is Jonah's God. The God who might be in the process of killing him is still his God. It's an amazing statement because it means that all of his rebellion so far has not undone the relationship. And not only that, he he prays to his God from the belly of this fish because even at the bottom of the sea with no conceivable audience, God is listening. And because even after everything that has happened and everything Jonah has done, Jonah still believes that his God will hear him. That's a lot of sudden hope in just that one verse. And it's very practical, if God is still my God, and if he still listens, then I can pray, I can even sing, even in the darkest of places. One of my favorite hymns we just sang this morning, How Firm a Foundation. Jonah could use a firm foundation at this point, I'm sure, anything solid sounds good. But we sang, you know, fear not, I am with you, Oh, be not dismayed, for I am your God and will still give you aid. Jonah is believing that in this moment, and that's why he prays. God is still Jonah's God, and he still listens. So Jonah starts talking. <coughs> well, how do you pray when you're in trouble or in a crisis? I've had some experience in that vein. I'm assuming we all have. Uh, In a crisis, if I'm in a panic or complete despair, my words tend to come, if they come at all, in a flurry. And most of it probably doesn't make sense, which is okay sometimes. If you've ever prayed through tears, you know what that's like. It's not a pretty sight. It's not something we like doing in front of our friends. Uh, The most honest prayers often come with a mess of emotions. And eloquence is not the word I would use to describe it most of the time. And it's comforting to know that God still hears, even when you're babbling on. Paul says in Romans 8 that the Spirit helps us. He says, when we don't have the words, the Spirit groans on our behalf. I'm not a charismatic. Groaning and babbling aren't like my go-to when it comes to prayer. But it's good to know that God's hearing does not depend on my eloquence. Amen? But Jonah is eloquent here. Almost, as I said, suspiciously so. It's almost too good. You almost think like, how did he have the presence of mind to pray so eloquently? You almost picture him being like, Oh, that's a good line. I've got to remember when later. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write that down. Um, and evidently, I mean, that is basically what he did, right? Obviously not right away. But you can imagine him feverishly writing at a desk in candlelight here in the belly of the fish, right? But that's not how it went. And when we're in panic mode, we don't always think so clearly or eloquently. So how does Jonah do it? And I have a suspicion I just think that Jonah likes to sing, or at least used to, and I I think he's falling back on what he knows. Because this prayer is not particularly original. He's echoing the Psalms which he would have been singing since he was a child. John Calvin points this out in his lectures on this chapter. It's just in the footnotes, actually, but I thought it was very interesting. There are no less than seven parallels in this prayer to specific lines from the Psalms. And sometimes the wording is rearranged slightly, but the imitation is very obvious. Jonah borrows bits and pieces of Psalm 3, 31, 42, 64, 120, and 142. He doesn't cite his sources, Grace. This would never pass as a college paper, I know. But he borrows from all these psalms, and I'm going to guess that most of us wouldn't have the presence of mind to do that, but it's not a question of Jonah trying to be clever and inventive. He's not being creative here. On the contrary, he's doing what's coming naturally. He's singing a new song, but it's also an old song. It's the same old song with a different meaning since you've been gone. Four tops, 1965, never mind. (laughs) Jonah knows God's word, so that's what comes out when there are no other words. We tend to repeat what we already know, what's already in there, what we put in tends to be what comes out. And Jonah is able to be eloquent because so much of the words were already up here. And the passage is a good demonstration of why it matters what we fill our heads with. I find that thought actually rather convicting. Because we live in a very distracted age, and I'm certainly a part of that problem. I think not only of how I invest my time, the things I listen to and pay attention to and read. Not all of it bad, but it's certainly it's filling your head with a certain narrative and certain thoughts and certain phrases, Right? I think of what we let our kids fill their minds with. We try to be careful in our house. We don't let the kids just watch whatever the heck they feel like. But it's not just a matter of avoiding bad stuff. It's about filling your mind with the good stuff, the stuff in God's word. Because we memorize what gets repeated most often in our ears. And it's the catchy stuff that sticks. So it's worth making it catchy if we can figure out how to do that. But think of advertising, right? It's the worst earworms that are sometimes the catchiest, right? And our head ends up full of jingles for products and political slogans and and even just stuff we disagree with, stuff we hate, gets stuck in our heads, maybe especially so. We memorize all kinds of stuff in our lives, but there's nothing in most of it that's going to comfort us if we're in distress. And if our heads and our hearts are filled with meaningless garbage, that's all we're going to be able to fall back on in a moment of crisis. We won't be able to remember the important stuff when we're at the end of ourselves. Music is a critical way that we do this. The Psalms were essentially the songbook of the Old Testament. We don't have the music anymore, unfortunately. It's also a prayer book, right? It's the prayer book of the Old Testament. And it's okay to borrow God's words to speak to him. That doesn't bother him. And it's funny, most of us don't like when people throw our words back in our face. Um, That's because most of our words aren't that great. Um, And people seem to remember best the things that you said when you were angry or tired or hungry or half-asleep, that kind of thing. That's what comes back to haunt you. But when you throw God's words back at him, he listens. I remember Donald Trump once saying, right, I have the best words, like, fact-check, false. No. God, in fact, has the best words, and you really can't improve on them, can you? It's a wonderful thing to pray the Psalms and other scriptures when you can't find your own words. And yet Jonah doesn't just parrot one of the Psalms verbatim here. He does get a little creative. He blends God's words with his own situation. He applies, in other words, God's promises to his own moment. And let that be proof that God's word speaks to all situations. Even if you're swallowed by a sea monster... There is a relevant scriptural response to that. You can pull promises from half a dozen psalms that will be fitting to the occasion. There is nothing you are facing that God's word does not have something to say about, and that is a great comfort, but only if you're ingesting it and know it. My pastor uh, growing up, uh, he used an illustration once, I remember, of of walking with a glass of water, and he said, you know, if somebody bumps into you, what's going to spill out of this glass of water? water. Why? Because water was in the glass. Uh, Being bumped did not determine what was in the glass. It just shook out what was already there. That's true for all of us. Uh, Whatever we have internalized, whatever we keep rehearsing in our head, that's what's likely to come out if we get knocked around. Jonah is full of God's word. So for once, he sets a good example. One chapter out of four. Now, as a side note, I think this is also a good reason for why the kids are doing memory verses downstairs. George is rewarding them with honey sticks. Whatever it takes, babe, it's good. It's also why scripture songs are important for the church. I love the hymnal. There's great theology in the Trinity hymnal, and and some of the hymns are based in scripture. It's just modified to rhyme in English. Uh, But one of the things I loved about my church growing up was the scripture songs we learned. They were catchy. They were faithful to the text. And I memorized a lot of scripture that way. We sang one of them last week at Evening Prayer. It was a rendition of James 4.10, but I learned a lot of other passages that way, and I'd love to introduce more down the line in the future. But in any event, uh, being familiar with God's word can help give us the language to talk back to him, which is good because his word is more reliable than your ability to think clearly in a crisis. So Jonah starts with what he knows, and it's not just the Psalms either. He also echoes lamentations here right off the bat. And his opening words are what sets the tone of expectation for the rest of the prayer. And like I said, we're not going to cover all of it uh, today. But make no mistake, he has expectations, and I just love the way that the prayer actually starts. Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me, out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. see this progression to becoming more personal. It's like he's talking about God third person. Now it's like direct, right? That verse is a direct echo of Psalm 120, verse 1, and also Lamentations 3, to 56. In my distress, these say in order, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. And Lamentation says, I called on your name, O Lord, from the depths of the pit. You heard my plea. Jonah expects that God is listening, and that he will respond. He is invoking a promise. He says of his God, you heard and you answered me, and he states it in the past tense, because he is that certain that God will respond and do something. It took him three days in the belly to finally do this, to finally call out to the Lord. But when his life is ebbing away and he's almost given up, he remembers his memory verses. And he prays God's word back to him. And suddenly, in the midst of that, there's a tone of hope that comes. And it's not because his circumstances have changed or gotten any better. On the contrary, things are only getting worse, but God's word restores his hope. Memory verses, scripture songs. That's what comes back to mind. I don't know, how many of you have ever been in a crisis at some point? How many of you have struggled with what to say to God in those moments? How many of you have, like I have, sometimes end up saying nothing? When you've been running from God, like Jonah has, and when your rebellion is what led to your pain and suffering, sometimes the easiest thing to do is to tune God out and wallow in the suffering because, well, after all, I deserve this. I'm going to sit and feel sorry for myself, and why would God want to hear from me anyway? Beloved, this is not what your heavenly Father desires for you. If He is still your God, that he wants to hear from you. And moreover, since Christ has come and died for our sins and united us with himself, we now know God as our Father. And what kind of father wouldn't answer the phone if his child called in distress? He will hear and he will answer, for the Bible tells you so. Do we believe that? I want to look more next week at the actual content of the rest of the prayer. For now, I just want you to see and be encouraged by Jonah's newfound hope. Because again, it's not that his circumstances have improved. They've gotten worse, if anything. But he suddenly remembers his memory verses and it gives him hope. And as Paul tells us, hope does not disappoint. Jonah made his confession on the boat, but I don't think that he saw it as good news for himself when we talked about that passage. But the preacher needs the gospel too. I know I do. The gospel isn't just good news for everyone else. It's for you, and it's for me, and we need to be reminded of it again and again. Jonah may well be the worst evangelist of all time. He's done very little to disprove that theory. But if you're going to evangelize at all, you have to have hope. Peter says in his first epistle that we should always be ready to make a defense of our hope. That's what apologetics is. It's defending your hope. And as I often told my apologetics class last semester, step one in apologetics is have hope. Because you can't share something that you don't have. It's just as true in communism, right? Maybe, like Jonah, you've been in a dark place. Maybe you're there this morning, I don't know. And it might be a crisis of your own making. And you may be worried, and you may be despairing, and you may even be depressed. But just this once, just once in this entire book, I can say, be like Jonah. Talk to God, and he will hear you in the pit. And if you can't think of your own words, use his. And if you can't talk, sing. And if all you can do is groan, he can handle that too. Jonah may not have much going for him, but he's recovered his hope. He no longer has a death wish. He's no longer sitting there just waiting to die. After three days, he's finally convinced that God must not be done with me yet. To quote Samwise Gamgee, where there's life, there's hope. And so even after all the horrible things he's done, Jonah is finally ready to talk to God. And he is convinced that God will hear, and we should be too. There is no reason why Jonah should have more confidence than you. We have something even better than Jonah could even have dreamed of. Jesus has come, and when he went back, he didn't leave us as orphans, he said. I'm talking about it in Sunday school this morning. If you are in Christ, you have been adopted. You have the spirit of adoption, and you can cry out, Abba, Father. So have hope. Remember your memory verses. Sing them if you like. But most importantly, talk to your Heavenly Father. Because you can't go anywhere where he won't hear you. So let's talk to him now. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, We thank you that you are a God who hears. We thank you that you are our Father. We thank you for the spirit of adoption, Lord, that we can cry out to you. Even if the words don't make sense, you hear them. And you're concerned to hear them. Lord, I don't know where everybody in this room is this morning. All of us come in with some sort of burdens. Things that we're worried about. That afflict our minds. Lord, will you teach us? Will you help us to cry out to you? Give us the words. Give us your words. And we thank you that you hear. Just as you heard Jonah. Lord, we ask these things. In Christ's name. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please stand and join me in singing the doxology. Praise God from